You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. From the glamour capitals of Europe comes the exciting drama of the men and the women who live the passionate adventure of Grand Prix racing. James Garner, Eva Marie Saint, Eve Montan, Brian Bedford and Jessica Walter, dramatic new stars Antonio Sabato and Francoise Hardy, Toshiro Mifune, and the world's champion Formula One drivers. Now, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, director John Frankenheimer, and Cinerama take you out of the grandstand and hurl you into the most exciting experience of your life. Legendary engine builder, you're listening to Cars and Stars. I gotta write it down. This is Ed Pink, legendary engine builder. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, let's. 
listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio on Cars. No, Cars and Stars. No, hey, man, I got to write this down. I got to do Anyway, uh, <laughs> evening, Matt. That was funny because we actually did that interview with uh, with Ed Pink, and I'm trying to think when that was. I think it might have been at the PR, PRI show in Orlando, and we met him over there because that's back when they used to have PRI. used to be in Orlando. It was always every every um, December. Anyway, uh, yeah, tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. That's us. Okay, don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out NostalgicRadioAndCars.com. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing fantastic, sir. It's nice to actually see you in studio this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on a minute. <coughs> I still have this little cough. I'm not quite sure what it was, but last week was really bad. I had laryngitis for a day, and I was just, like, whispering. My wife liked it because I was quiet as a church mouse, as a kitty cat. But at any rate, so now I'm back to being loud and obnoxious as usual. Uh, Anything less would be uncivilized. It would be uncivilized. You're, you're the right guard of radio host. I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so uh, we got an uh, exciting show for you tonight. We got uh, our gentleman, um, Bob McKee, coming back for part two. And we're going to get in some of the really cool stuff that he did, some of the development. Um going to be interesting. This weekend, I really didn't uh, do much of anything. I always kind of give you guys a little update. I, normally, I go to a car show, an event, or this or that. I take that back. I did go to a car show. I went to uh, Inverness, Florida. Had a little car show up there. I went up there for that. Some pretty cool stuff. Every once in a while, you see some pretty interesting things. There was a 68 or 9 Barracuda sitting there. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and um, he had it. Kind of decked out like a 340S, which was kind of like the top-of-the-line car back in the day. Again, 340 motor came out. I think the first year was 67 or 68, somewhere in there, because I had a 273 before that. And uh, it was striped out, and uh, it was original California car, extremely solid, came from California, had a California plate on it. The guy relocated from California. And the interesting thing was, I don't know if I mentioned this story once before or not, but uh, the guy came from, like, my county, Marin County, uh, north of San Francisco. So he was from Nevada, and I was from San Rafael. And that's all part of Marin County. At any rate, I'm pretty sure it is, unless it's Sonoma County. I don't think so. That's where the racetrack is. That's where wine country is. Sonoma County, Napa, everything like that. Big shout out to my uncle Art, who's in Santa Rosa. Um, shout out to my friends over there at ClassicCars.com. John uh, Woodhouse. If you need a classic squad car, I shouldn't say squad car. They got 2019, 20, 21 cars over there right now. So they got some Crown Vicks and they got some Tahoes and Explorers and some cool stuff. So if you want a cop car. Cop car online. I guess that's it. Yeah, but if you look at those cars, say in 2050, they'll be seen as classic cars the same way we view something from the 70s or 80s now. Well, this is true. This is true. This is true. So let's put it this way. They're future classic cars. Future. Hey, I like that. Future classic cars, okay? And future car collectors. There you go. See, Fu- there you future go. car collectibles, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway... Um, I was supposed to go to the Pittsburgh Grand Prix, but uh, there was a little um, scheduling conflict there, so that didn't happen. But we'll put it on the calendar for next year. So what's going on here? Monterey's coming up here in a couple weeks, three weeks, Monterey Collector Car Week. Um, with a little luck, I should be out of that. And uh, then I think the next event that I may be going to might be the Chattanooga Motor Car Classic Festival in Chattanooga with our friends Corky Coker and those guys up there and um, Meekle will be up there with an auction there'll be some uh, vintage road racing going on or vintage racing of some kind I'm thinking it's going to be in the streets of Chattanooga not 
that there's a racetrack up there that I'm aware of, or at least I think it's going to be downtown. At any rate, and then another event that I'm looking forward to is the Moonshine Festival, which I've never been to. I've heard about it a hundred million times, and that's up there in Awesome, uh, Awesomeville, Dawsonville. That's where Bill Elliott is from. Austin. It's Awesome Bill from Dawsonville. But anyway, Dawsonville, um, Georgia, and uh, just on the other side of Lake Lanier and in between, uh, kind of, yeah, kind of in between a little bit there, Road Atlanta. And uh, so that should be kind of cool. And then our, we have shout out to our friends up there at Atlanta Motorsports Park, um, Jeremy Porter and them, and Alice, Alicia, I should say. Um, that's a pretty cool place. And um, so we'll see. You know, and then, well, if you check out my website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, if you follow us on social media, every once in a while I post some of the stuff that, uh, some of the upcoming events. Well, I generally post all the upcoming events. And uh, and we usually try to attend those. So, But I want to try something different. Oh, yeah, the other one that I've kind of got on my radar is the, uh, now Rensport 7 or 8 is in Monterey. That's at the end of October. But it's also the same time as the Audrain um, Concourse in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, I've been to Newport before on my way up to Maine, so my wife could have a delicious lobster, Maine lobster. Um, so I kind of know the, the New England area, and I used to go to Lime Rock every once in a while, so it's a nice track up there, nice scenery, nice countryside. And um, so I'm going to put the a train um, concourse on my radar. I think it, it would be really interesting because Rhode Island, obviously Newport, Rhode Island, that's where, you know, Vanderbilt's and everybody like that and the Carnegie's and everybody had these mega mansions up there. Beautiful. And I think, isn't there some big tennis thing that takes place up there in Newport, Rhode Island? Every uh, year? I think so. Give me a second to look. Yeah, look that up. I, I mean, like, they have their Wimbledon in, in England, and I think we have the U.S. version of that. I should know, because I used to play tennis a little bit, but my wife followed it all the time. Unless it's got wheels, you know, and gears and shifters and makes a lot of noise, I really don't know much of anything. But at any rate, um, so that should be a pretty cool event. Now, having said that... And I think the tournament you're looking for is called the Hall of Fame Open. I think that's the tennis tournament open in Newport. Is that what it is? We're talking tennis tournament, right? Tennis, yeah. Yeah, tennis. Hall, of, Hall of Fame Open. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, but isn't there a tennis event that takes place there? Well, wait a minute. It's got a name, something similar to that, too. I don't remember exactly. Newport Open. Newport, Newport Open, Open is, the, is the official one through the ATP, the tennis tour. Okay. So Then that's it. So we just yep. got edumacated here. Right. All right, and for our uh, listening audience, our, our sports jock here, uh, Matt, you know, he yeah. knows all this. <laughs> anyway. well, this. This I had to Google. Tennis is a little out of my foray. <laughs> is it? Okay. Well, anyway, we'll stick to road racing. We know that better. All right. Anyway, um, yeah, we even played the clip to, uh, was that movie Grand Prix, right? We just played this a little while ago? Yep. Yes. Yeah, that was interesting. Anyway, um, so the... Inverness Car Show, the Barracuda was kind of cool. And even though it was a stock, may have been a 318 car at one point in time. But it had a 340 in it, and it was all decked out. And what was interesting is in 60, I'm going to say 8, 9, the, that's back when you know all the psychedelia was going on and, and all the other interesting things during the 60s and all the other movements. But there was a, a mod, M-O-D, mod movement going on. And so you had mod clothes, mod fashion, mod uh, style, you know, a little bit of architectural flair, 
Um, obviously, mid-century um, comes into play there. And uh, so some of the car guys got into the act. And what uh, um, Chrysler did is they had a mod, um, I'm trying to think, a trim package. And it included a really kind of cool, flowery uh, vinyl top, a little different upholstery, some interesting uh, flowery colors, you know, something symbolic of the, of the 60s movement, so to speak. Well, what this gentleman did is he took a convertible and made a replica of, and this was his wife's car, uh, of a mod uh, Cuda. For the 67, 68, 69 cars were all pretty much alike. The only thing different was the side marker lights or no side marker lights. 68's around, 69 is rectangle. 67 didn't have anything at all. Basically the same car, and they made a, a coupe, fastback, and a convertible. And uh, and they could be six owners or small V8s and um, and uh, four speeds or automatics. But it seems to me 68, 69, you could have got a 383 in there too. I'm not, I don't remember exactly, but I think you did because I ran up against one once before. And, uh, and of course, everybody would shoot. If you could put a 3440 in there, you could shoehorn a four. I mean, if you could put a 383 in there, I'm sure you could shoehorn a, a 440 in there or, you know, even a big, uh, a Hemi because they had Hemi darts back then and a dart and a, it's basically an A body. So a dart and a CUDA or A bodies. Anyway, so he did a very, very nice job. I mean, the detail on this car, it was almost concourse level. The paint was B5 blue, which was probably the most color. 68, 69 on, on Mopars, B-body cars and, and A-bodies. And um, so it was just in the interior, the detail, the chrome, the engine bay, undercarriage. I mean, it was really almost too nice to drive. It was a beautiful, beautiful car. And then, of course, this gentleman on his own had a 69 B-body Roadrunner four-speed car with a 383, also California car, also very original. And he was a hobbyist and and did this car. He did everything except the paintwork and uh, all the mechanicals, most of the bodywork, um, but he had somebody paint the cars, and it was very, very, very nicely done. So, you know, when you run into that, even though the rest of the car, the car shows, you know, very often have a lot of the same cars, they show up. But there's a lot of guys that have different cars, and they bring them to the events. Uh, you know, they might have five or six cars stashed away. Yesterday, in fact, I walked into a guy's garage. Okay, again, you just never know. And uh, I didn't know it was in a building. I don't have x-ray vision. I wish I did. It was a beautiful 57 Nomad sitting right next to the 57 Nomad, and it had a ZZ motor in it, you know, so it wasn't, uh, it was kind of stock, it had Dakota Digital Dash, minor, minor, minor upgrades, but still very much original car, except for some of the mechanicals and, and things like that, disc brakes, you know, the, the good stuff that you need to make the car more drivable and a little safer. And next to that was an all-original 1939, no, 1929 Buick sedan. I mean, with artillery wheels on it, the mohair interior, just a beautiful, original, unmolested car. And it had been in the collection, his father-in-law's collection, something like 60 years. That's all, you know, well, 60s, we're talking 60s now, okay, because we're in the 20s, 19, or 2020. Beautiful car. And then the car that was sitting beside that, which I, I'm, I'm up into dune buggies a little bit, but I did not know that they actually had, and I've seen these before, but I didn't know much about them, but this was called an Allison and it was built by a company out of Daytona, and it was called Allison Dune Buggies, or Allison Buggies out of Daytona Beach. 
And this was an all-original car that his wife received when she was 17 years old, 16 years old, I believe. And her parents bought it for, for her when it was brand new. That was her first car. And so it's been in the family since new. Now, the interesting thing about this dune buggy was that it was painted red, metallic red, or metal flake red, I should say, with gold metal flake stripes. And it was originally built, they built two of them, it was originally built for the Shriners. And uh, so it was a promotional car for the Shriners, and it was real interesting. And this thing was all original. The only thing he'd done to it recently was rebuild the engine. He had all the, 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 the soft top for it, the side curtains, everything. Uh, original gauges, everything. Um, Sip tires, obviously, you know, mechanical upgrades and stuff. But just a really, really nice. How do you put a value on it? That's priceless. I mean, you know, when I say priceless, I mean, you know, it's probably a twenty, twenty-five thousand dollar doom buggy. Hmm. Plus or minus. And um, I mean, Mars Maxes, obviously, bringing uh, that's the originals, and they're bringing the most. And then, of course, you know, the the ones that Gene, Defre- Gene Dean Jeffries did, the Coyotes. Those are really, really rare, really, really sought. And I think they only made maybe a few hundred of those. If that, maybe, if, if. Somebody said it was 50, 60, but I don't know. I ran across one here in, in Tampa one time, and just the body. I should have grabbed it, but I didn't. Didn't have a place to put it. And uh, and then, of course, they made some other companies. There was another company out of Atlanta that made copies. Of course, everybody copied the Myers Max. But anyway, another story for another day. We're going to have somebody come on. Well, we had Bruce Meyer on, talk about the Myers Max. But anyway, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go to uh, a little music. We're going to get our guests on, and we're going to be right back with uh, our special guest for the evening and you're tuning into nostalgic radio and cars do not touch that doll we got some groovy country music coming for and what do we have here we got uh, oh charlie daniels. daniels yeah uneasy rider i was gonna say no it's not the song everybody's used to hearing this is something a little different tonight. this is a little different yep yep yeah the devil didn't, this is before he went to georgia this is when he's uh, someplace out in the midwest anyway you're tuning into nostalgic radio and cars don't touch that doll i will be right back i promise you i won't let you down Taking a trip out to L.A., tooling along in my Chevrolet, talking on a number and digging on the radio. Just as I crossed the Mississippi line, I heard that highway starting to whine, and I knew that left rear tire was about to go. Well, the spare was flat, and I got up tight, because there wasn't a filling station in sight, so I just limped on down the shoulder on the rim. I went as far as I could when I stopped the car It was right in front of this little bar Kind of a redneck looking joint called the Dewdrop Inn Well I stuffed my hair up under my hat And told the bartender that I had a flat And would he be kind enough to give me change for a one Well there was one thing I was sure proud to see There wasn't a soul in the place except for him and me And he just looked disgusted and pointed toward the telephone I called up a station down the road a ways and he said he wasn't very busy today and he could have somebody there in just about 10 minutes or so. He said, now you just stay right where you're at and I didn't bother to tell the darn fool that I sure as hell didn't have any place else to go. I just ordered up a beer and sat down at the bar when some guy walked in and said, who owns this car with the peace sign and the mag wheels and four on the floor? Well, he looked at me and I damn near died And I decided that I'd just wait outside So I laid a dollar on the bar and headed for the door 
Just when I thought I'd get out of there with my skin, these five big dudes come strolling in with this one old... This is Ed Justice, Jr., President and CEO of Justice Brothers Incorporated. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and uh, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce, reintroduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman was on our show last week, this legendary car designer and builder, Bob McKee. Bob, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing just fine, thank you. Well, where we left off last week was we were, I think we are kind of doing a NASCAR thing, but we were just starting to get into some of the road race cars. So there's the McKee... Mm, I'm not sure how you called it. Mark one, Mark two, II, Mark three, Mark four. So they're kind of like road race cars. Look a little bit like Lola's and McLaren's. Is that kind of what they were? Yeah, that's what we were racing against. That's what you were racing against was the Lola's and the McLaren's. Okay, so you had your car. So tell us, take us through the story of how your your cars evolved. Well, actually, uh, I'd always wanted to be a car builder, and uh, we developed that transaxle. Uh, and sold quite a few of those. When we had the transaxle we were manufacturing ourselves, uh, the next step was to design a car. And I'd been working on a car for Roger Ward. It was a Cooper Monaco okay. that he bought from Jack Brabham uh, that was throw Formula One cars for the Cooper team. And anyway, we got the, the car, and uh, it was a... A sports car, Cooper Monaco, that had a, a small Climax engine made in England. We got it without the engine, put aluminum Buick engine in it. And it was a pretty nice little car. But there were a lot of things that I thought could be done perhaps better and different. So that's when we started designing our own car. And a Chevrolet dealer... Uh, in one of the nearby towns was a sports car racer and he said he would buy a car if we build it so um, we built him a car and it was called a Chevette uh, we ended up building two of those Jerry Hansen had one and Dick Doan the Chevrolet dealer had the first one uh, it had a Chevrolet engine in it it had predominantly General Motors parts in it and most of them used Chevrolet engines, uh, some Oldsmobile engines, some Ford engines. We even did one with a Hemi Chrysler engine, uh, the same as uh, Richard Petty was using in his stock car in NASCAR. So we pretty well covered covered every sort of engine anybody wanted. Uh, it was a tube frame car. They had to have two seats. Um, supposed to have headlights and supposedly a street worthy car that would fit the United States and world regulations for headlights, tail lights, brake lights, that sort of thing. So um, as time progressed they got less and less streetable and completely race cars. Um, in the end they were not even having headlights on them, but um, they were pretty nice, light little cars. They performed well, and they ran in a series uh, in the C-modified group in SCCA, and then they made a road racing 
series called the USRRC, and there were quite a few races that they could run in, in that class. And that evolved into the Can-Am series, which uh, really got popular and brought really big money into the purses and brought a lot of the European Formula One drivers over here and Le Mans drivers, Indy drivers, uh, sports car drivers from this country. And it was the best paying series in the world at the time, and it really brought in a lot of people. Uh, people could afford to buy a car and uh, hopefully make the money back by racing it. There were all about a dozen races around this country and Canada. That's why they called it the Can-Am Series. So, these, like those cars that you built, uh, the McKee race cars, uh, roughly with a small block Ford, a small block Chevrolet, what did they weigh? Oh, about 1,650, 1,750 pounds. And then what? You had about 250, 300 horsepower out of them or a little bit more? Oh, they were well healthier than that. A lot healthier? Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, we got using, uh, say, 350 cubic inch Chevrolet engines and uh, the 289 Ford engines. We built uh, a couple of cars with that engine in it that the Cobras were using. Uh, then we had a customer order one, and he wanted a Holman and Moody 427 Ford stock car engine. So uh, we built one around that, and within a week of when that was ordered, a fellow from Arizona ordered one that he wanted to put a Hemi Chrysler in, like uh, Richard Petty was running a NASCAR. So we built one that way. So we weren't really partial. We had quite a few with the big Oldsmobile, 455 cubic inch Oldsmobile, with fuel injection. And uh, you had to run them on gasoline, but other than that, the rules were pretty wide open. You could do about anything you wanted to build, and each year the tires got wider <laughs> and lower profile, and the cars were getting faster and faster. Uh, our really main competition was McLaren, Lola, the Chaparral built by Jim Hall in, in Midland, Texas. So it was it was a really fun series, and there was quite a bit of money in it. Uh, Jim Hall was dominant for the first part of it. Then the McLarens came, and they were dominant for several years. And then Porsche made up a, kind of a version of the 917 for the Can-Am series, and Donahue drove that, and that was the dominant car for a couple of years. So it made it interesting with different engines, different configurations of cars, and um, people from all over the world driving them and some of the best drivers of the world were involved with it your cars the mckee cars um what would so in other words like you can you can say like a a, a, a lola 270 or a mclaren m6 m8 so what were your cars designated they were um they basically were like, if I remember correctly, Mark Ones, Mark Twos, Mark Threes, and they they originally were open cars. But did you have a specific name for the or a model name for them? No, that's what we used. Uh, the first two we called Chevettes because they used so many Corvette and 
Oh, I see. And Chevrolet Parts. Parts and that's where that name came from. Okay. And uh, just they, they then they were McKee cars and um, McKee K&M cars, um, and that things were developing so fast. And the t- each year the tires would get wider by an inch or two, and be lower profile. And uh, both Firestone and Goodyear were building race tires for them. So it made the series really interesting, and they were running on gasoline. And most of the Formula One drivers were coming over um, and run weekends in the Can-Am here and fly back to Europe and run in the Formula One cars in, in Europe. So the Can-Am cars, now I will tell you that my two favorite series is Trans-Am and Can-Am. And Can-Am... You know, used to read about it all the time, and I've been to a countless mini races, so I wasn't all, uh, able to go to the races when I was a kid, when the series was hot. You know, the the the, the big years from '66 to '65, '66 to '70, basically. And but the thing that I thought was really cool about KNM is, like you said, the rule book was wide open. It was all innovation. It was almost like run what you brung. When you look at some of the stuff that Jim Hall came up with. Or you compare it to the Shadow, which those cars were absolutely insane. Um, give us some of your uh, thoughts on that and how how those types of cars and how the other builders, how they inspired you. Did they, were you guys, was, was it like a giant camaraderie thing and people were sharing information or was there a lot of secretive, secret, secret stuff going on? Well, no, it was, everybody kind of kept things hidden uh, if they had an advantage or had something that was working particularly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Hall was the first guy to do a lot of aerodynamic things with the wings front and back. Um, he had an automatic two-speed transmission with a torque converter. Uh, he was getting a lot of help from General Motors, uh, and his cars were really well thought out, well engineered, nicely built cars that he built a lot of the parts in Midland, Texas, and the rest he got some out the back door of Chevrolet. Okay. Even though Chevrolet was supposedly not in racing, right, as they say? <laughs> yeah, well, they have a back door, and things would fall out the back door from time to time. <laughs> so when you were there, and talk about um, race teams and how they prepared. So obviously Shelby was very well prepared. Chaparral was very well prepared. Penske was, you know, they always say Penske perfect. And, you know, obviously the McLaren teams and stuff. How was your teams? Were you, did you run your own teams or did you work, or were your teams sponsored by somebody else and they were using your cars and you were there? Well, that, I was, I was there for a lot of the races. Um, I sold my cars to privateers. Okay. And, most of them didn't have the money to run the full series and travel coast to coast. And, you know, most of them were businessmen that played racer on the weekend. Okay. And so Shelby had a lot of professional drivers driving his car, uh, you know, Bondurant and Dan Gurney and all of those well-known people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were getting Ford money and using 289 Fords in the uh, Cooper Monacos that they built called a King Cobra. Right. And some of the King Cobras used the transaxle that we designed and built 
here in Palatine, um, he called up one day and said he'd like to order a transaxle, and I asked him, did he want the close-ratio close gears or the, the, the long gears? And I said, well, we can also get 9310 steel, which is better gears that come in the Pontiac. He said, oh, I don't know anything about that stuff. I'll have Ken Miles call you when he gets back from lunch. And you can sort out all the technical stuff with him. So um, we sold them several transaxles for the King Cobras. Um, it was such an interesting time, it's hard to explain how amateurish and professional it was all at the same time. Um, Dave McDonald drove a lot of the King Cobras, and um, unfortunately, you know, made his demise at, at, at Indy. Um, did he? Did did some of the professional race car drivers drive your cars also? Oh yeah, um, Dick Thompson was. Well, oh, he was okay. a dentist actually from the East Coast, but um, he drove our Chevette in quite a few races. Finished third at uh, Meadowdale here in the Chicago area. Um, with Jim Hall winning the race and Penske behind it, um, it was it was an interesting, fun time. And uh, but everybody would help each other. If somebody needed a part, you could borrow it from the guy in the next pit. And you know they offer to help each other if you had to stay up and change an engine all night. You'd get a volunteer from another team that'd come and help you. It was. It was really a nice atmosphere, fun to race, and um, in the transition of going completely professional and where the race teams don't really have anything to do with one another like they do nowadays. Yeah, that was a, a, a better time. I used to hear those stories because uh, my neighbor used to go to, um, actually, he went to the races on the beaches at Daytona. He actually had a lot of the programs. and But he was telling us stories like when he would go to Daytona and Sebring, you know, Shelby, Hall, Penske, all those, even back when Penske was racing, he says those guys, everybody was just like, uh, you stand around, drink a soda, and, and talk with everybody. It's just a real casual, easygoing thing. And, and he said that, and I've heard this from other race car drivers, he says, no, we want to help each other because we want you on the track so we can beat you. You know, I don't want you sitting in the pits. I want that car out there on the track so we can race. And and, and that was actually kind of a good attitude, you know, when you think about it. You know, it wasn't like, okay, this guy's out, you know, he DNF'd or whatever, and, you know, and his car's gone, and we'll just continue the race. But, you know, there was they, they, wanted, they wanted the competition out there, which was really cool. And, of course, today it's so... I don't know. Back then, let me ask you. So you had all this innovation, you had this camaraderie. You had this. It, it seemed like it was there was a different passion, a different, um, different energy level back then than today. Today, it's just totally corporate. Yeah, it's it's all business now. But then everybody that was doing it was doing it because they loved racing, right? Loved automobiles and wanted to be creative and and race an interesting high-powered car that was fun to attend the races and work on the cars and see the country towing from one race to the next. And it was just the, the way racing should be, I think. Yeah, hamburger to hamburger and milkshake to milkshake, right? <laughs> well, you had to do win the race or finish well enough to make some money to get the hamburger, so <laughs> that gave you more incentive to 
keeps the thing running fast. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the Helmet turbine car. Let's talk a little bit about that. How'd that come to, to into existence? Well, uh, actually, Ray Heppenstall from Philadelphia had a friend that worked at Helmet. Was uh, on the on the board of directors. And he convinced them that it would be a good way to advertise how met. They were an aluminum um, stainless steel casting corporation for turbine engines. And so he told them that what they ought to do is build a race car with a turbine engine in it. And at that time, there was a lot of interest in turbine engines. Chevrolet and Ford and Chrysler all had turbine engine projects for trucks and cars, uh, Chrysler cars, they were loaning out. Uh, they made, I think, 57 cars, and they would loan them out to people for a three-month period, and they would try the car. And they were learning about turbine engines, and it was kind of a new development, and the possibility using it in a car sounded reasonable. So uh, we took basically one of our Last year's Can-Am cars uh, that I had traded a brand-new car for, um, and I didn't want to chop up of the brand-new car to make into the turbine car, so I traded it to a fellow that had our last year car and won the national championship in SCCA. And we took the body off, uh, mounted turbine engine in it. I designed a transaxle that was... Uh, a single-speed unit with a double reduction on it that the turbine engine could sit above the transaxle in the back. Um, the engine weighed 175 pounds. It was a Continental Teledyne engine made for a helicopter as a prototype. So they had made a deal, Helmet had, with Continental Teledyne to lease the engines because they were part of a government military program. Uh, the real contract for the volume production went to Allison, so they had a dozen of these engines in their research lab with nothing they could do with them. Um, you know, they weren't legal to fly at an airplane because they weren't air certified. Um, so they thought that sounded like a good idea. It would advertise their company. It would get give Helmet some advertising. And so we just made a our Can-Am car, basically. Um, we used fiberglass fenders. We made the doors, engine cover, and front hood out of aluminum and uh, had gull-wing doors on it. It was a coupe, and it used a Porsche 906 windshield, which was the smallest windshield that you could use at that time for the FIA rules at Le Mans for the 24-hour race. So with that start, uh, we built the car and uh, took it up to Elkhart Lake and did some testing on it and tested it on the roads around the shop here in Palatine. Um, and it worked pretty well. Uh, they ordered another car, so we built a second one. And uh, they, they were seventh fast qualifier at the Daytona race. Uh, on the new oval track down there for the sporty car race. It was, a, I think, a 12-hour race at that time. And that was 1968. 
they took it to uh, uh, Watkins Glen, and they finished third in a, a six-hour race there with a turbine car. But there's a lot of development work when you build a new car and use a new engine. Um, the engines are lightweight and reliable, but they, they don't like to idle down and accelerate. Um, so we worked out a wastegate system so that would keep the engine revved up. But the price of having that on there was you burned a lot more fuel. But you had instant response when you got on the throttle. So, um, like all things, there's trade-offs, good and bad, whenever you do something. And uh, the thing ran pretty well. Uh, the Howbent car has six world records for speed. Um, it's running uh, Le Mans 24-hour race, Sebring, Daytona, Watkins Glen. So... They got quite a bit of racing in. They got a lot of publicity because it was so different. It was on the cover of Aviation Week and uh, a bunch of things. Attracted attention, and it looked kind of racy. We ended up building four of them before we got done. And uh, there's one that's uh, running in Europe right at the moment. Uh, it he runs at the Le Mans Classic for vintage cars over there. In fact, he ran a couple of weeks ago with his car, and if you Google that on uh, your computer, uh, there's all sorts of things about how met turbine cars running um, both in this country and in Europe. So it uh, shows the car, and they ran pretty well, and uh, it was an interesting project and something very, very different. When you were originally, you know, conceptualizing that project, so the engine, like, you know, a lot of times you'll have, you know, you'll be doing some engine testing in your shop or a shop. So, but you said this engine came basically, this, these were basically experimental prototype engines. So how much refining and tuning and learning the tuning did you have to do before you actually got it into the car to where it was kind of dialed in where you guys felt comfortable okay this is this this whole total package here is going to work well it ran several races before some of the niggling little problems were worked out okay um, you know it was completely different you don't have a clutch you don't have a transmission uh, the thing runs at uh, over 60,000 RPM in the turbine, and there's a gear reducer within the turbine engine. Um, so the output of the engine was six to 7,000 RPM, which is, you know, what Chevys and Fords and all can run up to. So, you know, we made a transaxle that would accept that, and we could change the ratio to fit whatever racetrack it wanted to be, but it was only a single speed. When when that car was on the uh, back straightaway at uh, doing the Mulsanne Straight in Le Mans, what was the top speed? I think it was 186 to 190. Okay. And you know that was 55 years ago. Right. Well, that was flying. That's that's 
darn fast, okay? Because only a few years later, they were running 230, 240 with the 917. So you're talking, you know, and I'm sure aerodynamics had, you know, played a lot in that. Let me ask you this. So your turbine engine compared to the, the turbine engine that they ran at Indy, and then very much like the turbine car that they built, the the sedan that Chrysler had, what was the differences in the motor? And from the time that they – and I'm not sure when they started playing around with turbine engines and considered it as a, as a viable uh, a propulsion source, if you will, for, for cars. But what, were there a lot of differences that made yours – seem to I mean you of the turbine cars that race yours was actually the most successful well that that dumb luck comes into that quite a bit <laughs> okay uh, and uh, you know the uh, STP turbine car that Granatelli did right um, that Parnelli Jones drove that car almost won the Indianapolis 500 it was about three laps short, and the a bearing and the transaxle destroyed itself. Okay, so, so it wasn't it, the motor; it was the transaxle that let go in his car. Yeah. Okay. And you know, um, in those days, uh, race engines were not as reliable as they are nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all these factory-backed, computer-based engines, they can catch uh, an engine going lean and riching it up and uh, they could optimize the engine with the computer a lot better than you could with carburetors back 55 years ago mm-hmm. so the hum, but the the basic engine so in the in the turbine car the indy car and, and and the chrysler were they essentially the same engine and is there a is there a displacement or how does it work with turbine engines how do you calculate the size well that's a difficult thing uh they had a rule after ford won le mans with the gt40 that the engines had to be three liter and smaller okay and so our engine for the helicopter uh, put out 375 horsepower and they calculated it to be equivalent to a three-liter naturally aspirated engine. Okay. So um, they let us run it. It was kind of in the class, like the garage uh, 56 class at Le Mans now, where you can bring one oddball car that doesn't necessarily fit all the rules, but it's an interesting science experiment, and they're not capable of winning any prize money but you're there racing to prove your point okay so it was more of an exercise than anything else well it was advertising for how bad okay and you know they were a new company they came from france um and they were trying to get started in this country they had a lot of articles in uh industrial magazines and um race car magazines talking about how met and it didn't cost them all that much to do the cars we built the cars for ten thousand five hundred each um which you know it was a lot of money back in 1968 but uh compared to what they are nowadays 
it's a drop in the bucket. Oh, very much so, very much so. What's your thoughts on racing today? I mean, a lot of us look at it like it's modern-day spec racing, you know? It's just real expensive, and it's all corporatized. But, you know, I still truly enjoy going to vintage races, and I look looking at the old cars that you can identify with them. You can tell what they are, their details in them. You know, today they all look alike, and they just got little different decals on them. Well, that's certainly true, and but it does keep the price down. Okay. And the, the cars are so technically sophisticated. Um, computer-controlled suspension, computer-controlled engines, um, titanium uh, exotic materials. Um, everything keeps escalating the price of building a car, and it takes a crew of quite a few people to keep one running for a 12 or 24 hour race or Daytona running any kind of race nowadays takes a lot of people you burn up a lot of tires um, they're going fast enough if they crash you've got a lot more pieces to straighten out make <laughs> do so um, it keeps getting more complicated and more expensive when you look back in time, um, given you had the opportunity, what other project would have you liked to work on? What's something that was kind of like in the back of your mind, besides the turbine project, besides some of the other cars that you worked on and built? What was something you kind of wanted to do, but you never got around to do it, but if you ever had the opportunity, you would again? Well, I was lucky. Uh, when things got slow at the shop, I had uh, four to eight people working at the shop all of which were highly skilled craftsmen that could, you know, would sketch something out or I'd make a drawing of it and say, let's make it this way and that way. And they could go out their workbench and make the part. I'd be out there sawing out parts and welding them together. And you could do something and try it. If you got a wild idea, let's try this, uh, would, would do that. And it was fun. But now you've got rules. You have to run the... A-frames from uh, Dallara on IndyCars or whosoever car you're using um, and everything's so stressed and highly complicated that it's hard for an individual company without the backing of General Motors or Ford or somebody like that to be able to to build a car nowadays, which is kind of too bad. I, I got a high school education and I've read a lot of books on vehicle dynamics and tried to teach myself, but, uh, you know, there was the shop with four to eight people in there that built all this stuff. We built a lot of electric cars and hybrid vehicles, and uh, back in 1968, we uh, built two little cars for Exide, Willard, and Railback that would run 60 miles an hour and have a hundred mile range um, with lead acid batteries and you know they kept saying well in a few years we're going to have a better battery but we had lead acid golf cart batteries and that was interesting doing something different you know we're just about up against the clock again and uh well what i'd like to do i want to do a little bit more research so i'm a little bit better prepared but uh bob i'd love to have you on again down the road sometime we can talk a little bit about that because you know now with this uh 
and I'm not a fan of it. I think we should, you know, let the market decide. But, you know, with EVs kind of being forced down our throats a little bit, I'd like to really get your take on, on, and I know that's a whole show for in itself, on the whole direction of where this uh, electric car is going, the potential with the hydrogen cell cars and all the other stuff. So um, would you be up for that down the road sometime? Sure, yeah. Okay. Well, we'd look forward to it. So, again, uh, Bob, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Green Cars. Great stories. Who was one of the most, real quick, but we got about 30 seconds left, one of the most interesting guys you ever met? Give us a name. Uh, Gus Grissom and Gordon Cooper, two of the astronauts. Okay. Uh, they owned an Indy car that we did a lot of work on. All right. Interesting. All right. Well, very good. Well, Bob, you take care. Uh, we'll stay in touch. And if people want to find out more about you, basically they should go to the uh, – what's the name of that museum in uh, Nebraska? Where the, uh, Speedway, Speedway Motors. Speedway Motors. A whole docu- slash Bob McKee. Bob McKee. Yeah, there's a whole storyline there for uh, on you, and it was really fascinating, interesting. And uh, I took some notes. So uh, th- next time I'll be a little bit better prepared, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about electric cars and where that whole thing's going. So, uh, again, I want to thank you for hanging out with us, and uh, all the best to you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Anyway, all right, guys. Uh, hey, big shout-out to my friends over there at uh, Midway Shoe. And the reason i got to say that is because they fix my shoes. I'm kind of like an old-school guy, and I still polish my shoes, and I still wear the same shoes. I get to try to get the most out of them. You know, I don't know why, but those guys have always treated me right over there. So big shout-out to those guys. Again, shout-out to my friend over there at Cop Cars Online. Uh, Matt, thanks for doing your good job as usual. Thank you, sir. And, I try uh, to do what I do when I can. Yep. Uh, shout-out to my friends over there at uh, Forte's... Uh, Classic garage. They work on a lot of vintage cars. Um, you know, they send me some business every once in a while. Like I was telling you about that uh, 71 LT1 Corvette that we just did here a while back. And, uh, and and some of the other cars that we have in the pipeline. You know, we'll talk about those as I get them completed. And, uh, and you know, anyway. So, you know where to find us here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network. Don't forget to tell your friends. Share. Uh, follow us on social media. And, uh, you know, it's uh, still some pretty decent weather out there in spite of the rain, so get out there and drive your cars. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.